Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. This show is part of the book club series where we feature a book each month and have a conversation with some of the incredible authors in our network. Enjoy the conversation and you can check out all of the great books and resources on our website www.redletterchristians.org. I can't think of anybody I'm, I'm more excited to kick it off with than my brother Jamar Tisby. Welcome, man. It's so good to be. People are going to think we've known each other for a while because I, <laughs> I love I love this brother. But we we have uh, this is our first kind of chance to talk like this. I'm pumped, man. I'm so grateful for your work and because I read your your first book, The Color of Compromise, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. And I'm just getting rocking on your new book, uh, How <laughs> to Fight Racism. So we're going to talk about that too. But I thought, you know, folks that are new to you. Give us a little bit of the the backdrop, you know, of, yeah. of your own story. And uh, I think that that's helpful because it, it just makes us appreciate you even more, I think, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, feel free to cut me off at any time, but I'll try to make it brief. Um, you can pull out the hook and drag me out. Um, so so it's probably most helpful to hear a little bit about my spiritual journey. So I grew up in the Midwest and uh, we were not an especially religious family. We weren't anti-religion, but it just wasn't a big thing in our household. So I started getting serious about my faith and really became a Christian in high school. And that was through the ministry of a white evangelical youth group. And so I've always uh, been thinking about or been present in this this tension and this dialogue uh, between race and religion. So um, <clears throat> for whatever reason, in God's grace, it was serious. It stuck. Um, I was serious about my faith, ended up going to the University of Notre Dame for undergrad, which, of course, is a Catholic school. Uh, that was important for a couple of reasons. One, that is where I first got exposed to something called Reformed theology, and um, I've heard a of testimony it. There, <laughs> yeah, I got a testimony there. I didn't know what I was getting into, but what I liked about it at the time was it just had a lot of Bible. It was a lot of scripture, and it sort of scratched an itch that I had to to deepen my intellectual understanding of the Bible. So I pulled on that thread ended up going to a, a Reformed church in South Bend, and uh, that was my first experience of kind of like exegetical preaching verse by verse through the Bible, all that stuff. But again, I'm noticing I'm the only Black person in these spaces, and so the only sort of uh, hint I had that there were other Black people out there in this space was a book by Tony Carter called On Being Black and Reformed. So I, I found, okay, well, at least there's at least one other Black person who, who knows about this stuff. So that kind of kept me going. But the other reason going to Notre Dame was important for me and, and being a Catholic school was important was they had something called the Center for Social Concerns, which it blows my mind. We could have a whole conversation about how you wouldn't find a similar, you know, center on an evangelical campus in most cases. But, but it was a result of Catholic social teaching, Catholic social tradition. Because of that, I did a few uh, volunteer service opportunities in the inner city of Chicago. And that's what set me on a trajectory for what came next. After I graduated, I joined Teach for America. And that's how I got from the Midwest down to the Deep South. And not just any part of the South, the, it, the Delta. So, wow. uh, there's a, a historian who calls it the most Southern place on earth. And it's so true in so many different ways. The, the, the way I try to analogize it for people who've never been here is the way that uh, the rest of the country looks at the state of Mississippi. That's the way the Mississippi looks at the Delta. Wow. So it is the poorest part of the state. It is the highest concentration of black people in the state. I am on the Arkansas side of the Delta, but it's a cultural and geographic regions, state lines don't matter that much. So I'm in the Arkansas part of the Delta. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, you come face to face with history here. Uh, yeah. I, I literally live uh, next to cotton fields. And so my commute to the University of Mississippi is through cotton fields, which you can't, you know, late fall, early winter, it's blooming and you can't drive by, by that without thinking of sharecroppers, without thinking of enslaved people, some of whom were my ancestors. Mm. And so it brought me face to face with our racial history in a way that I had never experienced growing up in the Midwest. Um, from there, I also live in um, 
there was an article in USA Today in 2019 that named the county where I live the fourth poorest county in the entire country. Wow. Um, in my town, 41% of the people live at or below the poverty line, which is compared to a state average of about 20%. So we have a lot of generational poverty, again, tied to you know economic exploitation that came before. And so in my classroom, I'm getting confronted face-to-face -face in real life with all those issues that come along with poverty from uh, you know, food deserts to an underinvestment in public education to mass incarceration, crime, all of that stuff. And I'm asking questions of my faith. What does my faith tell me about these right. issues that, that, that are, are now you know, flesh and blood before me? And I found that in the reformed and evangelical spaces I was, it didn't have a whole lot to say. Mm. So long story shorter, um, I, I go to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, experience some of the most acute racism I've ever experienced. And it's from Christians in churches, in Christian spaces. Uh, 2014, 2015, we have Black Lives Matter emerging as a national movement, uh, seeing some of the responses of white Christians there and ba basically end up in um, taking a graduate course in history at Jackson State University, which is a historically black college. And I was, I was hooked uh, wow. from, from there. I enrolled in the PhD program at the University of Mississippi during the coursework for that degree that uh, my first book, The Color of Compromise, came about. And uh, my second book, How to Fight Racism, which just came out in January uh, of 21, that was really the, the book I wanted to write, but I knew I had to build a foundation first. Uh, so they go, they go together. They can be read independently, but they definitely work together well. So that catches you up a little bit. Yeah, man. And I'm, I'm so glad you did. Cause I, I mean, I think that probably some of the folks that read the color of compromise were, were looking for the, you know, well, what do right, we do? You right, know, you kind of right. start your new book mentioning that we want to do something. And, but you, you know, you begin, we're, we're going to dive right in on this. And I should say this first of all, cause you, you and I, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time together. I grew up in Tennessee and I grew up mm. kind of in, in a theological, um, uh, 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 all of these entanglements too. My family was Southern Baptist. My mom uh, raised me United Methodist. Then I got involved in the charismatic movement, mm -hmm. you know, got rebaptized. But in the midst of all of it, I was in a very small town, uh, Maryville, Tennessee, East Tennessee. And on our high school, our high school was a Maryville High School Rebels, Jamar. Wow. And yep. on our lunchroom trays was the Confederate flag uh, on yep. our high school walls on our football uniforms wow. they had these little flag confederate flags and it was not i, I should just uh, i'm throwing it all out there man when i went to college and i put my high school yearbook on my college dorm room shelf it had the confederate flag on it my friends were like whoa mm. that's not cool you know and, and i i i leaned in you know i was like i you know this is not just about football spirit you know i started to learn more about things that i didn't have um eyes to see, you know, but, yeah. you know, I've been kind of learning. And then part of why I studied sociology uh, was to keep unpacking that. But I wanted to, like you, I love the Bible. I love Jesus. So I wanted to see how my faith intersects with mm. that. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's an interesting um, backdrop now as we look at everything going that's on right. in our country. Right. And we're going, yes. we're going to get there. Y'all, y'all, we got, <laughs> we got plenty of time here, but I want to start with your first book, which, um, when when you talk about history, you quote Dr. King when he said that uh, that our our the lack of dealing with our history of racism is like a boil mm. that can't be cured as long as we keep covering it up. You know, injustice has to be exposed. And and it, you you kind of in your own words, you said there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession and there can't be confession without truth. And it seems like a lot of people are wanting unity. You know, they're wanting some yeah. short. Let, let's just move forward as a country. So talk a little bit about why we can't get our future right until we get our history right. That's such a great question. I'm glad you you, you honed in on those quotes. Listen, unity has to be based on truth. Otherwise, our so-called togetherness is, is built upon a faulty foundation that's bound to crumble anytime we come up against stuff that really matters and, and, and where we might disagree. And uh, as we look at, at the Christian church, 
my goodness, we have so much to confess to each other and the Lord about just about the denial of truth before we even get to the ugliness of the truth itself, <laughs> right? Um, I believe it was Eddie Glaude, uh, the, the Princeton uh, religious studies professor, who said the United States is not unique in its racism. It's unique in its denial of its racism, in, in, in this, this iron grip that so many people in our society have on embracing stuff like you mentioned, the lost cause, which is all that Confederate iconography in the 21st century, but, but, but also it, it, this commitment to a, a triumphalistic, a triumphalistic uh, rendering of the founding of the United States. We, 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 we're not even supposed to get into current events yet, but this is why I love history. <laughs> Man, you saw the backlash against the 1619 project with right. Nicole Hannah Jones and 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 the even the written suggestion that the nation's true founding might have been more closely related to race-based chattel slavery than these sort of mythical foundings in 1776 that were all sort of positive for freedom and liberty and justice and all of that stuff. You saw the backlash to where, up to the point where uh, even the White House under the previous administration issued executive orders that you can't teach this stuff, that you can't right. train people in certain things. And there's even a proposal in the state of Arkansas by Senator Tom Cotton to basically do the same thing and audit the curriculum to excise it of anything that was sort of anti-American, which of course is just truth telling about, you know, uh, the, the massacre and uh, theft of land of indigenous people, of race-based chattel slavery, Jim Crow segregation and all of that. So I say all that to say, if we don't tell the truth about our history, especially mm. about our racial history, Obviously, you can toss out unity, but even within the church, you can toss out genuine confession, confession, repentance, and any semblance of reconciliation that you might say. Don't even, don't even bring those words up unless we're committed to telling this ugly, hard, painful, but necessary truth. So good. I mean, I, I, I wish we could uh, talk about some real stuff tonight. No, uh, it's good. <laughs> and, you know, as you see this... Um, the the what happened at the Capitol January 6th, right? You saw these Jesus saves. You saw, um, I mean, people that were praying as they, as police officers were killed, five people were killed. You know, as they're going into the Capitol building, they're praying and they're praying in the name of Jesus, right? And so you, you name this really well. And uh, that what some of this is about a mythology that we've created, right? And uh, Brian Stevenson talks about that too, who you and I both love and at the Equal Justice Initiative, um, who is also a graduate of Eastern University, by the way. Uh, but <laughs> but he, um, he talks about how we won the battle over, the, over rights, over civil rights, but we lost the battle over the narrative because we kept moving without challenging that mythology, right? And you quoted, uh, you know, Eddie Glaude, who that, that quote is a, a just, clung to that where he says America is not unique in its sins as a country, but we're, we're not unique in the evils, but what may be singular is our refusal to acknowledge them and the legends and myths we tell ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. So we've created this mythology. I mean, even from manifest destiny to the American exceptionalism and there's a theology there. So That's unpack right. that just a little bit more and, and you know, how can we, uh, as one of my mentors said, all you got to do is twist the cross and you get mm. a swastika like mm, th that, no. that there are toxic versions of Christianity. And, and we look at our racial history and we see that, you know, folks that were lynching black folks on Saturday were worshiping on Sunday. And That's right. so what is that mythology and where can we start to disentangle the, the American nationalism from a right. better version of Christianity? That's great. Um, it's very current and very relevant. So I'm taking cues from sociologists on this, like uh, Samuel Perry, Andrew Whitehead, Taking America Back for God is their book. They, they name it Christian nationalism, but of course, wrapped up in that is, is white supremacy and racism and patriarchy and misogyny. And all of that stuff, unfortunately, gets imported to there. One of the things that I'm quick to point out is, is you'll see people say, oh, that's not Christianity. And of course, we know that's not the Christianity that Christ taught. 
But I, I, I'm wary when people say that's not Christianity because I don't want us to, for a second to think that there aren't those kinds of people very close. They're in our congregations. They're even elders and pastors. They're leading Bible studies and teaching Sunday school. Uh, they, they, they are much closer than I think people, particularly white Christians, would like to admit. And the reality is, this is the same thing I'm talking about in the color of compromise, right? So a lot of people are like, well, Jamar, why did you use the word compromise? Shouldn't you use a stronger word for, for the ways that white people were involved in racism and white supremacy? And I say, sure, we can use all kinds of, of stronger language, which is accurate. But if we talk about the people who are actually committing the, the, the atrocities, the lynchings, the cross burnings, you name it, numerically, numerically, that's a small number of people. They had a big impact. But, but what I'm trying to get across with this idea of complicity is that the most egregious acts of racism can only happen within a context of compromise. That mm. is to say, <laughs> it takes the silence, the apathy, the even willful ignorance of a whole bunch of people who never showed up at the Capitol or never burned the cross in order for that stuff to happen. So I don't want Christians in the U.S. to distance themselves too much from Christian nationalism. Right. I think we need a nuanced understanding of it. Again, you know, sociologists, historians, other uh, uh, folks have done a really good job of defining Christian nationalism. Uh, Perry and Whitehead say this. It's an ideology that idealizes and advocates a fusion of American civic life with a particular type of Christian identity and culture. And they say Christian in this sense means Protestant, preferably, but it spans Catholic and mainline, uh, white, American-born, um, a U.S. citizen, not an immigrant, and socially and politically conservative. And so you get this whole package with it. And what happens is they take Christian symbols, the cross, phrases, prayers, all of that stuff, and import this ideology into it. The last thing I'll say about this, although there's much more to say, is that this is, this is not new. <laughs> this idea of um, sort of a white Christian America, that the fate of the church is wrapped in the fate of the flag kind of a thing, that goes very far back. And I'll give you just one example. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan, which is probably the most well-known white supremacist uh, terrorist organization, had three iterations, three big waves. One was right after the Civil War to reinstantiate white supremacy after emancipation. The third one was during the civil rights movement to push back against black civil rights. But the second one in many ways was the most violent and the most widespread uh, 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 manifestation of the KKK. And it began on Thanksgiving day, 1915, when a group of white men led by a former Methodist circuit writer, so a former preacher, mm -hmm. went up to the stop, top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, which you know, is a desecration of uh, in a sacred indigenous site. And on the front of it is this huge bas relief of these three Confederate figures. They go up to the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, and they do a couple of things. Number one, they burn a cross, which of course is gonna become a symbol of white racial terrorism. Number two, they build an altar. And on that altar, they place a couple of items. They put a, a Bible and an American flag. Mm. And so let's look at that symbolism. You've got the religious symbolism of the cross in the Bible. You've got this uh, 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 perversion of patriotism, this idea of a white man's country, right? And um, you've got the, the, the uh, underlying foundation of white supremacy because they weren't, they weren't, they weren't going to invite black people into this group. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not inviting Jewish folks into this group. So, 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 so you've got race and religion and nationalism more than a century ago, and you can go even further back. So this has a very long history, and we're just seeing some modern manifestations of it. So good. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in my home state of Tennessee that we, we still have a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest, right? One of the founders, uh, the first uh, Grand Wizards of the KKK is still in the Capitol, and there's been a battle there, you know, to to try to get that removed. And it's amazing the 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 layers of resistance, you know, like the, 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 you know, some people agreed. Now there's a historic society that has veto power, you know, and it's just amazing uh. how we have been so often better at protecting Confederate monuments than Black Lives, right? And That's all of it. this has to do with 
how we remember history, right? And, and Brian talks about, Brian Stevenson talks about this too, and you do as well, that we don't remember history by putting up monuments to the people who were on the wrong side of it. That's right. That's <laughs> you right. don't go to Germany and see monuments to the Nazis. You see monuments to the lives that were crushed. We don't remember 9-11 by putting up 14 statues of the terrorists. Like that's not the right, right way to remember it, oh, right? Man. So, so you just brought up a, 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 a comparison, a juxtaposition that I'd, I'd never thought of before. So, so um, one of the most powerful museum experiences I've had is visiting the Holocaust Museum in D.C. Um, an, 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 um, I juxtapose that to visiting the Jefferson Davis Presidential Library and Museum. Now, Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederacy, a, 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 a secessionist you know, country, state uh, that with staged a failed rebellion, right? And, and he's got his own presidential library, just like all the other actual legitimate U.S. presidents. It's partly funded by the state of Mississippi down in Biloxi. And uh, I visited there. And of course, it's this lost cause celebratory of the antebellum South and Jefferson Davis and all of that stuff, juxtaposed to the Holocaust Museum, which is in remembrance of the victims and the survivors, right? And, and when you said how we remember history is to remember the people who, who, who resisted oppression, who were victims of oppression versus this celebratory, really mythological in, in the sense of untrue uh, history of, of a you know romantic antebellum South, that to me was a case in point. Like I've experienced that in in the sense of public history and i just i'm sorry to interrupt i had to you know it's you good man. thought in me i hadn't so had good. before and no, i think so it illustrates good. your point so i i want to i i want to transition just a little bit because just as we're thinking about history and you're you are historian but you're also you love jesus you you love the church and i love one of the lines from your your book it says there cannot be deep disappointment where there is not deep love and you, you love the church. And I think you also want to see us do better theology, right? And one of the things that I think you do so well in both the books, and, and we're kind of transitioning a little, well, they overlap, right? Like you yeah. said, but the how to fight racism, um, you, you talk about not, you know, res resisting the binaries. Um, mm -hmm. And one of those things that it seems like theologically that we, where we, we get stuck is that salvation is personal, an individual um, and, and or is salvation a, a social uh, transformation and it doesn't have to be either or, you know, right. and so talk a little bit about how you think of the big story, right, of, of God's salvation and redemption and why it has to be both. So it seems to be a very sort of Western theological tradition to think in terms of binaries. It's either this or it's either that. Um, and, and there's no in between. And, and I don't say in between as sort of, you know, take a little column A, take a little column B, mix them together. I mean, there's, you know, more than two options, right? So, so a lot of times people's understandings of race have to do with whether they prioritize the individual and interpersonal or the systemic and the institutional. Now, in all honesty, I emphasize the systemic and the institutional aspects of racism. That is to say, prejudice works itself out not just through people, but through policies as well. I emphasize that because in the US context, especially among Christians, the overemphasis has been on the individual and the interpersonal. That is to say, racism is just a matter of your, your personal attitude towards someone else. And, and, and the solution then to racism is you just be nice to, to, to other people. Some of my best friends are black, right? Like it's, it's the evangelical racial reconciliation movement. Let's, let's get people together in the same room. Let's sing Kumbaya. And that's how we overcome racism without any sort of sophisticated analysis of what we do about, you know, the fact that if you are a black male, you are have a one in three likelihood of ending up in uh, the criminal justice system versus if you're a white male, you have a one in 17 chance without any analysis of the fact that black women die in maternity related deaths at three times the rate 
of white women without any analysis of the fact that voter suppression disproportionately affects, affects black and brown and poor communities, right? So I personally, in my sort of public ministry, do emphasize the systemic and the institutional. That being said, I understand that racism is absolutely an issue of personal attitudes and relationships. And when we read scripture, you're seeing both. Um, right, right. Emphasis on holiness, personal holiness, being like Jesus, be perfect as, as I am perfect, right? But then as well, the prophets are calling out oppressive leaders all the time. So I just want us to read all parts of the Bible, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and understand it and apply it to, to our racial justice efforts. So good. So, yeah. And I, I think that so many, there's so many folks that have, that have recognized, I mean, Dr. King really uh, believed in that, you know, he said, he said, uh, uh, no law can change a heart, but it, a law can make it harder for you to kill me. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? So Great we, point. And maybe let's talk a little bit about how those intersect, you know, because I know um, there there's some folks that are saying, well, you've got to get the policy and the systemic stuff because it opens people up to the possibilities of a, a different world. Right. And there's other folks that go, well, no, this is fundamentally a sin problem, you know, and I, I, I've, you know, I'd written a book on the death penalty and I wrote a book on um, uh, gun violence. And, and what's really clear to me is that when it comes like a lot of these issues, they like guns, it's a, it's both a sin problem and a gun problem, mm -hmm. right? Uh, like, like you can't legislate love. No law is going to change a violent racist heart, but we also need some laws to change that make it harder for sinful people to do really terrible things. Right. And in the civil rights movement, you weren't going to change racist hearts by legislation but we needed legislation to change so black folks can be recognized as fully human and swim in the same swimming pools as white folks and vote and go to the same school, you know, so all that. So they're intertwined. But, you know, how do you see that 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 kind of dynamic between yeah. the policies and systems and changing hearts? You know, this conversation is just so emotionally and ideologically loaded for people that we actually blind ourselves to the simple basic truths, simple basic truths that we understand in other contexts. Here's a very lesser example. If I want to exercise regularly, <laughs> I'm gonna have to do some things individually and systemically to make that happen. So there's an element of willpower there. I gotta decide, I want to exercise, I wanna do these particular forms of exercise this often, et cetera, et cetera. But we also know that at a certain point, our willpower is going to fail us. It's going to be cold and dark outside, and I'm not going to want to go running. Or it's uh, I had a late night, and I'm not want to going to get I'm not going to want to get up early and exercise. So 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 if we're smart, we set up systems and structures and routines that make it harder for us to intellectually opt out of doing the right thing. So what do I do? I lay out my clothes, my workout clothes the night before. I buy the gym membership. So I feel like I'm wasting money if I don't use it. I get a, 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 a partner um, who I can call or who's checking in on me, right? So these are systemic things, structural things that we're putting in place so that we can make good choices and we can maintain our individual commitment. But right there, you're seeing that dynamic, where I'm having to make, you know, individual personal decisions about something, but I'm also wise to set up systems and structures in place. So that's how I view the dynamic in the sense of, you know, for the folks who say it's just, you know, it's, we can talk about this in a moment, but that, that sort of dynamic or tension between uh, Billy Graham's approach and Martin Luther King's approach for, for the people who say, you know, you just, you basically preach racism away. <laughs> you preach the racism out of people, just preach the gospel, convert people, they'll become sanctified, you change hearts one, one person at a time, that's how you eradicate racism. You say, great, yes, absolutely, change minds, change hearts, but let's set up systems and structures in, in place just in case, <laughs> just because we know. <laughs> how folk do. And then for the folks who would em emphasize, you know, sort of systemic and structural uh, solutions to the exclusion of the interpersonal uh, attitudes and heart change, we say, 
we're going to set up all the systems and structures possible. But at the end of the day, what you really want is for people to want racial justice. Mm. Mm. What you so really good. want yeah. is for people to understand the dignity of their neighbor and to love each other well in our society. Mm. So we ought not to cease doing that either. How do you think we we got it so wrong with the the the, the even the personal conversion? You know, I think of um, Billy Graham on a lot of things. He was he was seeing some of these things, right? He was going, I don't want revivals to be segregated. Like the, mm -hmm. even though the church may be, even though our society may be like, we need to have a bigger dream, a bigger vision, right? Um, but then I remember, uh, I think it was Dr. Perkins, John Perkins that told me about an encounter where Billy Graham had come down to Jackson, Mississippi or something and uh, said, we're going to see a lot of people get born again. And Dr. Perkins, <laughs> this is my paraphrase of how I remember it, but I think he was like, well, I've seen the folks that have gotten born again. <laughs> There's some of the folks that uh, are, are really creating the problems, you know. And so how is it that conversion did not mean uh, this this new way of seeing and thinking that was still so immersed? And I mean, I'm thinking now, even in our country, and these are some of the questions that we have coming in the chat and uh, online are, how is it that folks who have this born again experience come to Jesus can still um, be so entrenched in that, that history uh, and support things that are just indefensible. Like we've yeah. seen recently, you know, right. um, in our country. So I don't know if you have more <laughs> thoughts on that. <laughs> you know, Shane, there's something that happens when whiteness and Christianity intersect that it becomes poisonous and toxic. And, and that pains me to say, it gives me no pleasure to say that. Um, and, and, and notice I said whiteness, not white people, right? So whiteness as an ideology that, that, that is in service to white supremacy. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll point people to the book, White Too Long by Robert P. Jones. He's the head of the Public Religion Research Institute. It's called White Too Long. And he's very bold because, A, he has personal experiences in white Christian and, and evangelical spaces, but B, he has reams of polling data to back up his assertion that he basically goes as far to say is like, um, you know, white Christianity, white and Christian, it's tore up from the flow up and it's basically irredeemable as is. So I'll let you read his book <laughs> to, to, to see whether you're persuaded by his thesis. But I think um, we, just from a historical perspective, so often Christian theology has been twisted in service of white supremacy. We can go back to 1667. Actually, we can go earlier. We can go back to Columbus's first encounter. And he's got journals. This from the 1490s journals that evaluate indigenous people based on their similarity to Europeans. Physically, he calls them intelligent, but because they're different, because they're darker skinned, because they don't practice the same religion, he basically says they'll be good servants. Mm, mm, like right. that's it. That, 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 that was the limit of his imagination there. Then you can fast forward a little bit to 1667 I think it's important for people to understand race-based chattel slavery was not inevitable in the United States. It, it, it did not have to go down this way. And if certain people and groups of people, especially Christians had made different choices, we could have had a very different outcome. But in 1667, the Virginia Assembly, which was a group of white Anglican men, made a law that said baptism would not emancipate a, a Native American, a person of African descent or mixed race descent. And so right there, from before the beginning of the United States, this is a century before the Declaration of Independence, more than a century before the ratification of the Constitution, you have uh, uh, people making a law, enshrining racism and wrapping religion up into it. And then the last example I'll give, though we could give many more, is with the Civil War had something called pro-slavery theologians, people like uh, 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 James Henley Thornwell and R.L. Dabney are some of the most well-known, but you had a lot of people reading and agreeing with them. 
who, who, who came up with myths like the curse of Ham, which basically the way they interpreted scripture mm. uh, relegated people of African descent to lifelong chattel slavery. And, and by the way, the quote unquote exegesis these guys were doing wouldn't pass muster in a first year seminary course. Mm. But because it was in service of an ideology that people wanted to persist and support, they gave it a pass and a thumbs up. So anyway, uh, you know, why it happened that way, I'm not sure, but I do know that it has a very long history. So as we're, as we're thinking about, you know, in your, in your, the book you've just put out last month, uh, how to fight racism. One of the things that you say is that you're prioritizing the practical. So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. I want to talk, you know, I, I want to end by hearing some of your dreams, right? Cause you also yeah. talk about the importance of dreaming, but, um, when it comes to the practical, it seems like um, one of the things that's really clear in our country is that black folks and white folks and, and white folks and people of color in general, but are, are experiencing a different America, right? Mm -hmm. We like we're seeing things through different uh, lenses and um, you talk about relationships. And I, I think like part of what opened my eyes were relationships with uh, black and brown brothers and sisters that began to open my eyes to things I didn't see. But um, Howard Thurman also talks about in Jesus and the Disinherited, he talks about how proximity of relationship without authenticity can be toxic. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in the South, you had black folks and white folks that knew each other, but there wasn't equality. So they, That's in right. fact, it can be really damaging because you can go, oh, I know all kinds of black people, you know, and they're, they're really tenderhearted people, you know, or whatever, you know, like, yep. so like talk about the importance of authentic relationship, but also, you know, why um, we've got to be doing other stuff too, right? Like yep. it's not, not enough just to have black friends or just to have a multicultural church. Like we've really got to do some hard work around the systemic stuff too. Right. Right, right, right. So, so, so the other stuff part is, is really a, a burden for me having spent a lot of time around, around white Christians who emphasize relationships. Um, so in the book, I, I structure it around a model I've been developing called the ARC of racial justice. ARC is an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And so awareness is what you would expect. It's the knowledge, the data, the information we need to understand race, racism, and white supremacy. That's listening to talks like this, that's reading books, that's watching documentaries, etc. Relationships, I think, are important for a couple of reasons, which I'll, I'll return to. But uh, a lot of times, uh, Christians, particularly white Christians, stop at the relationship part. And this is what I think characterizes the entire uh, evangelical racial reconciliation movement from the early 90s to the early 2010s. The emphasis was on multiracial churches, these conferences that had diverse panel of speakers. It was on, you know, pulpit swaps and choir swaps, things like that. None of that's bad. It's just not sufficient. What we have to do is work on that structural and institutional level to, to actually change the way our society structures our interactions around one another, right? So um, back to the relationship aspect, speaking to black folks and other people of color one of the things about relationships is to be wary of toxic relationships. Um, I can remember essentially being guilt tripped into staying uh, in, in white Christian spaces because people would well-meaning, they would say things like, well, if, if you leave, who's going to teach us, you know? Um, or they'd say, if you leave, isn't that giving up on the church, right? Isn't that giving up on Christian? No, it's not uh, because Christ didn't call us to be in toxic relationship. Uh, he called us to be in relationships of trust and, and, and equity and, and mutual upbuilding, right? And if that's not happening, then it's part of uh, loving my neighbor as myself. It's part of loving myself to say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to subject myself to that. So for Black folks and people of color, relationships may mean, A, leaving certain spaces for healthier um, spaces, and B, cultivating relationships with people who can honor your God-given dignity. For white folks, relationships, um, it's going to be really hard to develop meaningful relationships with um, non-white people. Why? Because throughout the history of our country, white folks have exerted tremendous effort to keep themselves segregated from black folks, brown folks, and other people they deemed undesirable, which means 
structurally and institutionally, you're going to have to exert even more effort to break down those walls and build bridges. So like you're saying, Shane, it doesn't cut it to say, you know, I interact with black people. <laughs> that is not the measure, right? Like, um, and, it, and it cracks me up inside. A lot of people say, well, what, you know, some of my best friends are black. And my first question is, well, does your black friend think the same thing? Because they may be thinking, um, we barely talk. I barely know that person. And you're over here saying, well, that's one of my best friends. So it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I often think, uh, go, yeah. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just saying, you know, relationships are, are necessary, but they're not sufficient in, in fighting race, racism in a holistic way. Mm. And yeah. And sometimes I think it's like who you call when you when your car breaks down you know, or when your mom is in the hospital and you're like, Perfect, I, yep. and like, like, how can we grow into those? And, I, and I'm, I, I think Dr. King's right. Right. When he's when he says it must grieve God that the most segregated hour is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. But like our Sunday services aren't going to change until our living rooms change, our That's dinner it. tables yeah. change, yeah. like our, yeah. like like who we call family, like really begins to um, change. And uh, and I just want to say yeah, so, so, so much of that is tied to those structural ways that white people have historically put up barriers between them and other people. So, you know, uh, understandably, a lot of people sort of jump to Sunday morning service and say, well, if we can integrate, you know, those churches, then society will change. To which I say, yeah, it would be great to have, you know, truly equitable, dignifying multiracial churches, which A, is really hard to do. Read um, the sociologist Corey Edwards, K-O-R-I-E, in her book, The Elusive Dream, Corey Edwards. Anyway, um, what happens on Sunday, though, is downstream of what happens Monday through Saturday. And so if we want to see our Sundays change, we got to see the rest of the week mm. shift, right? And, and, and in two areas in particular that are really going to ruffle feathers, residential segregation and educational segregation, right? So, mm. so you just naturally sort of invite people to church who, who you're around in the workplace or where you live. Well, if where you live is segregated, who are you going to be inviting to church? Who's going to be mm. coming to your fellowship, right? The other part is, especially when you get older, it's harder to just go out and make friends, right? You're not joining sports activities. You're not thrust into a dorm room with people, whatever. So, so you tend to associate with people where there's some sort of organic connection, like other parents and families at the school where your kids go. But if the schools are segregated, mm. guess what's going to happen to your social network, right? So, so for people, especially white people, it's going to take some deep introspection and very thoughtful reflection using God's economy, not the world's economy. Come on. About where to live and where you send your kids to school or where you yourself go to school. Mm. I think those are two big levers if you actually want to see integration on a meaningful level. I, I think the, the other thing that you, you get at in both your books and all your writing and um, in your life too, I think is that this, this, um, that part of what's happening in our country is, is some growing pains, right? Where, where we um, are experiencing a changing demographic in America, right? Where white folks are uh, becoming a little bit more of a minority. Uh, when you look at Congress, we had our first black president, got our first, you know, black female vice president right now. And now we got like changing demographics of Congress. And so there's this naming that many people have done of there's a white fragility, a white fear, and even a white nostalgia. Like we want to go mm -hmm. back. So when people say make America great again, many of them are saying make America white again. You know, we want to go back rather than forward. And so one of the things that uh, I think I would suggest, too, is that we need to be in spaces as white folks where uh, we are a minority. We might as well practice, you know, <laughs> and where where the leadership uh, is yes. people of color. Right. That's where huge. So that makes a huge difference because a lot of multicultural churches still have white leadership. And so a lot of folks are saying, like, what really changes is when white folks are in a place where we are actually following and being led and listening to and funding organizations led by people of color. So that's just one other thing I, I think that you name well, but uh, you know, other folks have, have said too, do you want, you want to say anything more on that? Um, 
I think Van Jones it, called it a white lash, right? This yeah, backlash, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so if we look at the Capitol insurrection, for instance, that is approximately a result of two months of the president, himself, the former president himself and allies calling for election fraud, which is mind boggling, right? Because, you know, some of the very same Republican elected officials were elected on the exact same ballots <laughs> that the new president was elected. And they're not calling fraud for that, but, you know, the, logic aside, right? And, and the cries of election fraud were not simply because the former president lost the election by a historic number of votes. It was because black and brown voters played a decisive role. So I say that to say that what we saw on January 6th is directly related to efforts of getting out the vote, particularly for black voters. And then you can even take just Georgia, the state of Georgia as a microcosm and their Senate runoffs um, that, 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 that had Ossoff and, and Warnock elected, right? And the role of uh, black voters in that state to get two Democratic senators elected. All of that's wrapped up, right, in this sort yeah. of scare. Um, and, and, and so much of Christian nationalism, so much of white supremacy depends on fear mongering mm. in order to stir up the base to action. Yeah. They're coming for you. They're taking your schools. They're taking your churches. They're taking your freedoms, all of that stuff. And the they is a lot of different groups. It's liberals, it's Democrats, it's whatever. But let us never forget that the they is always darker skinned people. Mm, mm. Maybe even you could go so far as to say primarily it's about darker skinned people, namely people of African descent, because the way white supremacy works is not only does it set up whiteness as supreme, it sets up blackness as inherently inferior and right, not just right. inferior, threatening, mm. ominous. And, 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 and so, you know, immediately with the Capitol insurrection, people were saying, if they were black, <laughs> unbelievable, dot, yeah. dot, dot. you know, you don't even have to finish the darn sentence. Mm. If they were black, why is that? Because white supremacy sets up blackness as ominous, as a threat, as, as inferior, and it has to be controlled mm. at all times that's why you, you you know you 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 know this more than most shane about about guns it's gun rights when it's white people it's gun control when it's black people right black panthers uh uh, uh march peacefully into the capital in sacramento california with guns to protest a proposed bill that would say it was illegal to to carry uh open carry loaded guns that wasn't an issue until the Black Panthers started carrying legally guns to monitor police brutality in their communities. Mm. And mm. when they noticed Black people had loaded guns, wait, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> so all I'm saying is, yes, there's a double standard there. And, and what we're seeing in terms of a white lash is very much related to not only the numerical growth of um, black people and other people of color, but, but the, 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 the voting power and mobilization of these groups as well. And, and I think it's so important to see that this, this fault line of race is, I mean, in, in almost every part of our society, we see it. I mean, we saw it in the last election uh, when it came to white Christians, 80% were supporting Donald Trump. When it came to non-white Christians, 80% my, my, were not, were not my, defending my, my. Trump, right? Yeah. And so when it comes to systemic racism, um, it's like 80% of white folks say it's not a system problem. We've got a few bad cops and we need to deal with them. When you ask people of color, it's exactly the opposite, right? So we're, that's where I think we, you know, we've really got to, um, especially as white folks, we got to listen and we got to realize that there are two different Americas. There's two different experiences that people are having in our country. It's always been that way, but it's more and more clear now. I don't, I don't think racism got worse. It just got exposed. It got recorded mm -hmm. on camera and people are saying, man, it, how many more George Floyds are there that we haven't seen, you know, and so I, I think that um, your work is so important. So we got all these questions coming in. This yeah, time yeah, flew. We don't have to do this again. <laughs> but let me let me just get to a few of the questions that folks have asked. And one one of them is like, 
I don't think there's an anecdote for this, right? Like, but what does reparations look like? Because it probably looks pretty different for the Southern Baptist Convention than it does for Princeton Seminary. But there, you know, it's there's not an easy anecdote. But I don't know if you want to say a little bit about like once you do get the repentance, you get the truth, like then what does it look like to heal some of those wounds? Or maybe you want to give an example or two where you've seen it done well. Yeah, so so in a, in the color of compromise, I say the only other R word more controversial than racism is reparations, um, and and that's controversial uh, across the board and for a lot of reasons. But but what I'll say about how and 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 what is to be done is reparations can take a lot of forms, but it it must include financial reparations, and and I am not at all opposed to direct cash payments to black people in terms of reparations. Why is that? Historically, um, why did race-based chattel slavery last so long? Why did it take the US's bloodiest war to this day, the bloodiest war, to finally bring about the abolition of race-based chattel slavery? It's because of that chattel part. A lot of us recognize the race-based part and we say, oh, they were just racist, they hated black people, that's why I enslaved them. It, that's true, but that's not why racism and uh, uh, slavery had such staying power. It had staying power because it was financially lucrative at its base. Race-based chattel slavery was an economically exploitative system that enriched plantation owners and those in their orbit at the expense of black people who labored without compensation. That was an injustice, an economic injustice that was never corrected. It didn't happen after emancipation. It didn't happen during reconstruction. It surely didn't happen during Jim Crow. It didn't happen during the New Deal. It didn't happen uh, uh, during the GI Bill. It didn't happen uh, in, in, in any sort of formalized political sense, nor has it happened on a broad scale in the church. And mm. so um, Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson have a new book coming out simply called Reparations. They're approaching it from a Christian standpoint, and they talk about um, ecclesiastical reparations. So the idea that we don't have to wait on the government to take the initiative, right. that as, as, as followers of Christ, we know a, an egregious wrong has been committed, many wrongs actually, right? So, so then we should do something about it, and we can do something as Christians and as churches. So mm. nobody's doing this perfectly. But I think the, 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 the big hurdles to get over are number one, that this has to include an economic element. Reparations cannot simply be, you know, I don't know, whatever kindness or largesse people can think of. There has to be a financial component to it because the exploitation was financial. Mm. And to this day, the racial wealth cap is not only large, it's growing. Right. If we don't do anything, it's going to get worse. It is getting worse, right? So, so we got to do something about that. The other hurdle to get over is the idea that, you know, we have to follow the lead of the rest of society. Christians ought to be leading the way in this. Uh, you, mentioned, you mentioned Princeton, which set aside, you know, over $20 million for, um, to set up uh, Black studies, but also to uh, help Black students pay for seminary. Georgetown has traced its history. Right. What I'd like to see, and this is not exactly reparations, but maybe it leads to reparations. What I'd like to see, if it doesn't already exist, is a consortium of Christian colleges and universities that together look back at their own institutional past and figure out what to do about it. Come on. So that's yeah. going to involve truth telling. Each of these colleges and universities should come up with a robust report I could mention a particular seminary that started it, but they ended in the 1960s, and so it fought, fell flat. Um, so, so, so they need to issue uh, 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 reports that are honest about it. Number two, they need to go back and apologize and attempt to make repair to specific people who their racism harmed. So often, once we sort of awaken to these ideas of racism and white supremacy, we're like, let's go forward. What do we do differently in the future? I tell you what you do right now, you stop, you turn around and you look at the trail of traumatized people you've left behind mm. and you see what you can do to repent and repair those folks. Then you talk about, in all honesty, I don't necessarily want scholarships to these places because they're still toxic. Mm. 
there's a whole lot of work that has to be done. Don't offer black and brown people scholarships to come to an institution that's still racist. Mm. I mean, I just, I'm just putting it out there. I've been in these circles long enough and I wouldn't recommend a lot of Christian colleges and universities to black people because uh, you go there and, and you're basically inviting trauma, racial trauma for these folks because they haven't done the internal work necessary for those places to be healthy. But you can still offer scholarships to an HBCU or some other you know, historically right. black institution, right? Um, so, 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 so then as you look at that history, as you tell the truth, as you do it in community with other Christian institutions, you begin perhaps to broach the conversation of reparations. But again, it goes back to what we said at the top of the conversation about truth telling. It all begins there. So good. So we got, well, we're going to do two more, man, but I, I hope we yeah, can do this again. Short. I hope we yeah. can do this again. No, no, man. People want to hear you. It's good. <laughs> so I, you, th there's a few questions that have come from a place of, of sort of asking, you know, obviously people of color don't need to stay in places that they're being harmed, but what would you say to white folks like that are in congregations that um, maybe still have, are, are still pretty saturated with some of that, you know, like, is there, is there a mission to that church or yeah. should white folks join, um, churches that are led by people of color? I mean, you know, maybe there's not an anecdote, but maybe you want to right. talk about the wisdom of either of those. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I have less of a straightforward answer than people would probably want, uh, because I think it's complicated. Uh, overall, I think the heavier burden of correcting white people does fall on white people. The heavier burden of correcting white people about racism falls on white people for a myriad reasons. One is just very practical. You have more access to those networks than I do. Uh, number two, you probably have more credibility in those networks than I do. I personally have already been labeled Marxist, liberal, communist critical race theorist, you know, it'll be easy to dismiss me. You might be easy to dismiss as well, but if you're a son, brother, uncle, employee, longtime church member, there's also some relational ties that give you some access that I may not have. So for that reason, I think the burden is, is, is on white people. The other reason is because white people came up with this stuff. People of African descent in North America did not come up with race-based chattel slavery for ourselves, right? So, so the people who are responsible for creating the problem ought to have a stake in alleviating the problem. Um, I was I was just thinking of uh, one of my friends was over in New Zealand and was talking about some of the dark sides of the indigenous spirituality and and the in the indigenous folks said uh, y'all better deal with your white demons uh, before you get yeah, the hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, same similar similar dynamic here. Um, that being said, I do know plenty of white folks who are really really committed to racial justice, really committed to being allies and advocates who are also in toxic spaces with other white people. Hmm. Um, and I'm not going to say stay in an abusive relationship. Right. But here's what, here's my approach. Um, I separated, I was, I was in the ordination process in a white reformed. It was the PCA. I was, I was in the ordination process in, uh, it has ties to Southern Presbyterianism, all that stuff. I completely withdrew from those spaces. Uh, yes, because I was black and I was only gonna ever be allowed to say so much. Um, but, the, but I've not withdrawn from hopefully speaking the truth in love. Mm, mm. Right. But by withdrawing, I am able to do so from a position of independence and power in a sense. Mm. Mm. They don't have institutional authority over me. They're not in charge of my ordination. They're not in charge of my paycheck, right? So if we can get into those spaces where, where, where folks don't have institutional authority over you, that would then free you up to say what needs to be said, I think there's probably space for that. Mm. Beautiful. And the last thing that uh, I, I promised I'd, I'd let you go by eight. So we're going to get off in just a second. But you, you say in your second book that it's a uh, invitation to dream. So as you think yeah. of the next generation, what, what are one or two of your dreams for either for the church or for our country? 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so my, my big vision and prayer that I know is not going to be there till Jesus returns is that people of any race or ethnicity would be able to walk into any congregation and mm. feel as, uh, at home. Mm. That's my mm. longing. I want to see Christian or church on the building and know this is a place that is welcoming. This is a place that is loving. This is a place that is going to honor my dignity in all of my image of godness, Glory. which would include my, my skin color, my race, my ethnicity, my culture, right? That's, that's the vision. That's the hope. That's the aspiration. How do you get there? There's a lot of practical things that we need to do. I want everybody on this call or who, 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 who watches it to, to do something I recommend in my book, How to Fight Racism, which is write your own racial autobiography. Mm. Write your own racial autobiography. That's I love good this homework. One. That's good yeah, homework. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All you need is a pen and paper or a screen and a keyboard and your memories and ask yourself questions like, what's my first memory of race? Have I ever used or, or, or been called a racial slur? Uh, what did my parents teach me about race? Um, you know, what's the most vivid memory I have about this? What do I believe about race, yeah. racism, and, and racial justice? That, I think, is this inner journey that's really important to have even before we go out and try to change the world around us. Another thing that I'm hopeful for is that people will sacrificially give to Black-led organizations. Yeah. Right? Like, like it irks me to no end when white folks, you know, finally get awakened to the issue of racism and white supremacy like 16 minutes ago. And they're able to attract all this attention, get all the posts, all the retweets, all the money. And meanwhile, black folks and other people are colored like, we've been saying this for centuries, mm. right? And, 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 and here we are. And obviously I, I, I have personal experience with this, with the witness of black Christian organization. We are laboring because not all money is good money. We want to be able to say what we need to say without people who gave us a lot of money saying, oh, that's too radical. That's too Marxist, whatever. So, 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 so we got almost no, no money, right? And, and meanwhile, Christian nationalist organizations or people who just woke up to the issue of racism yesterday are flush with cash. Meanwhile, the people indigenous to the communities that are most adversely affected by racism and white supremacy are laboring, doing incredible work but with a lack of resources. So I want to see sacrificial six and seven figure giving to black led uh, organizations. Right. Um, lastly, I, I thought you was getting ready to take an offering. That was, that was good. Hey. You can, you can <laughs> put a link in the chat, man, whatever you want, man. <laughs> we are doing, we are doing a, a capital campaign called the, will you be a witness campaign? You Come can just on. Visit the witness the witness support black led Christian ministry. But uh, the last thing I'll say is coming up in June, Juneteenth. Yeah. That is the oldest celebration of black emancipation in the country. I'm wary of saying this because I don't want white people to co-opt it in a negative way. If you hear what I'm saying. So Juneteenth is very black centered. Most of the people who celebrate Juneteenth are black and we celebrate it as our emancipation. I want more and more black people to celebrate it as, as, as a huge event annually. But I want the nation to recognize it as a huge event annually, but I want white people to recognize it differently. I hope white people commemorate Juneteenth as a time of confession, truth-telling, and lament mm. for their historic role in racism and white supremacy. If you jump to the barbecues and the dances and the celebrations mm. right along with black people without weeping, over the fact that we had to fight a civil war to finally emancipate human beings made in the image of God, who you consider your ancestors mm. considered property. No, nah, I don't want you at the, I don't want you at the cookout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Good. So I could go on and on, but you know, just buy the book if you want to hear more. <laughs> yeah. Tell people where they can. So your, your books uh, again, it's been an amazing hour with uh, Jamar Tisby, his book, you can see it right photo bombing him back there the color compromise and how to fight racism where's the best place that people can get it man yep just go to howtofightracism.com it is available in hardcover ebook audio format and we just released the video study on uh, amazon prime video if you want to purchase that howtofightracism.com 
my brother, this hour has been a gift and you are a gift, man, to the to the church and to the world. Thank you for this hour. Um, let's do hey, it again I've sometime. I've been looking forward it? to this. <laughs> I admire and respect your work. So I'm honored by the invitation. Consider me an ally in this. And uh, I, I'm glad to connect anytime. Awesome. Well, I'm going to close this out, y'all. Um, a lot of you are saying, like, where can we get more of Jamar Tisby? And I, I know you can go to his site. They're on the chat. But you can also, one of the things that Red Letter Christians is doing is w- Reverend William Barber says, the way that we change the narrative is by changing up the narrators, right? So we're trying to create a, a, a beautiful cloud of witnesses that are proclaiming Jesus and justice. So go to redletterchristians.org. We got to get you on there, Jamar, soon. So if you're not yes, do one more quick plug i forgot do it man yeah totally I'm so sorry um actually two real quick one i just started a newsletter so if you want to hear my rantings and awesome. ravings jamartisby.substack.com jamartisby.substack.com the other is tomorrow february 1st we are starting a how to fight racism online book study group it's on facebook go to facebook.com slash groups slash HTFR community, how to fight racism, HTFR community at facebook.com slash HTF or slash groups slash HTFR community. If y'all want to give back, we try to do all this for free, but uh, go to redletterchristians.org and you can uh, give a donation if you feel so moved so we can uh, keep doing stuff like this. Thanks to Kristen Snow back there running the the show. Thank y'all for joining us. We'll we'll try to get as interactive as we can every time, but uh, I I know y'all wanted to hear from Jamar, so I just wanted to keep listening and leaning in, get his book, get on his newsletter. Good night, y'all. Bless you. Thank you, brother. Thanks so much. We hope you've enjoyed this special Red Letter Christians book club conversation. The loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or faithful voices. We know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. So thank you for listening to the Red Letter Christians podcast, where we are aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. 